This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to HITS Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today I'm uh, back with another one of my uh, international friends. Uh, Steve Dean from uh, the UK is joining us today. Steve and I have been friends for quite a while now and uh, another another person that I was able to meet through the dog world. And uh, Steve has got a, a ton of knowledge, more experience uh, than, than almost everybody I know as far as coming around with puppies and breeding dogs. And he's had some fantastic assignments when he was with the London uh, Met Police Department. So uh, Steve, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm very well. Thank you, Jeff. So just so I don't botch it all up, you mind uh, just kind of running down your background? Because I know it's very extensive and I don't want to skip some stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I joined the uh, London Metropolitan Police uh, when I was 16 years old. Um, it was um, a cadet um, system that we had that took 16-year-olds, held onto them basically till they were 18 and old enough to become a police constable. And you, you just sort of escorted serving police officers around and got an idea of what the job was about. Um, and then in 75, I became a fully-fledged police constable. Uh, I was posted to central London, so all around Buckingham Palace, Houses of Parliament, Westminster, basically, um, where I met an awful lot of Americans. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> who all Asking wanted directions. Their taken. Yeah, <laughs> all wanted their picture taken with my police helmet. Uh, and one lady actually asked me, she said, take it off because I want to know whether or not your head grows into that shape. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, having, having served in central London, I then transferred out to one of the suburbs, which um, covered um, an area called Wembley, where our national football stadium is. And, and from there, I, in 1981, I was accepted for a post within the dog section. Um, in those days, uh, our dog section comprised of 400 general purpose dogs, uh, about 40 specialist search dogs, either narcotics or explosives. But then we had 30,000 police officers. So yeah. to get in the unit of 400 was still quite a difficult task. It's what we used to call dead men's shoes, basically. <laughs> you couldn't get in until somebody they died. died. <laughs> so, And just so we're clear, when you say general purpose, that's what we would refer to as a patrol dog here. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Tracking, um, bite work, um, searching uh, that, that was the bread and butter anyway and then from there there was a you, you could specialize either as a tactical firearm support dog because as you know we're not routinely armed in the uk um, we have specialist armed units that deal with uh, planned armed operations and and then we have mobile armed units that deal with whatever happens to to come up where it requires yeah. a firearm so you you could train your dog to work with the specialist tactical firearms units, a bit like your your SWAT people, I suppose, or you could go down the route of retraining your dog as a cadaver search dog, in addition to your patrol work as well. So, um, and then the specialist search dogs, as I say, were at that time limited really to narcotics or explosives. Okay, and was and th- at that time, explosives were obviously a real thing going on in London. So. Well, they were because, you know, the IRA given us a how really all the way through the sort of late 60s, 70s, early 80s. 
So, so to find bombs on the streets of London was a, was a routine thing for us, to be honest. So I imagine when you talk about search dogs or what we would call detector dogs, it was probably heavily weighed more towards the bomb dogs than the drug dogs, I would think. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I suppose in numbers it may have been 50-50, to be honest with you, um, because we did have a big drug problem. Um, and and the the value of the dog to, to locate the narcotics had, had become very apparent to the um, undercover drug squad people. And, and every job they went on, they wanted a dog because it made, made their life so much easier. Um, and most detectives uh, that, that I've ever come across, if they can make their life easier, they will. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we're all government employees after all. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, now, when you were there, you didn't work a detective dog. You worked a, a general a patrol dog. I worked a general patrol dog, yeah. Uh, my first one was a homebred um, female German shepherd. Um, so we had a, quite a large breeding program that, that uh, replaced 80% of the 400 dogs that we required to keep our numbers up. Yeah. Um, and that had been going from the 1950s. So my first one was a female um, German Shepherd that had been homebred. Uh, unfortunately, she, she only lasted four years because she had epilepsy. Okay. Um, and then I got that got replaced with another homebred puppy, a male. He, he lasted till he was 13. That was a Malinois? Uh, no, that was a German Shepherd. Another German Shepherd. Yeah, we didn't we didn't bring Mallies really into until I was running the breeding program. The first Mallies came in as a result of me going over to Holland and buying some. Um, but uh, no, it was all all German Shepherds. We actually had um, patrol dog Labradors as well back in those days, and and they could bite. Believe me. Um, the trouble was everyone wanted to stroke and cuddle them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. So let's, I want to talk, dig in a little bit about, you know, 400 dogs sounds like an awful lot, but obviously you said you had 30,000 cops. When we talk about the department, that's, I know the city of London is what a square mile and then the rest of the area is the, the metropolitan area. So you didn't cover all of the UK, you just covered that metropolitan area. Yeah, we ju- just, just London. Yeah. yeah. The, the, I mean, the city, as you say, is one square mile and that's a specialist police force. In its own right, the City of London Police, which is separate to the Metropolitan Police, um, we covered the rest of London. So, so the City of Westminster, leaning all the way out to what we would call the counties, um, and uh, about eight million people in total. So geographically, it was large, but it's just so concentrated. There's just so many people there. That's why you have the number of cops you have. And I assume you were assigned to like a a district or a patrol area, each one of you? You, you were, yeah, as a, as a dog handler. We, we always um, worked double, um, double officer vehicles. So each vehicle would have two dog handlers and um, two dogs in it, um, which I always found was a very effective way of working, especially if you're searching a large area. You know, you can cover two ends and work towards the middle rather than chase the suspect constantly out. Um, uh, and give them more of a chance to get away. So, um, but we were pretty thin on the ground, to be honest with you. And and, and nowadays it's even worse because I think we're down to about 170 dogs. Wow, for that for eight million people. That's yeah. So yeah. Uh, um, when you say you work two to a car, you had a. I've seen the setup. You have a split cage in the back, and yeah. Did you did you always have a regular partner, or every night did you change around to a different partner? We would normally be putting groups of um, four. 
and we, we'd sort of circulate between the four of us. Um, so you'd maybe do um, a month on, on a double vehicle or you might have a posting where you are actually walking. Um, so you'd be walking up the back alleyways of housing estates and things like that with your dog. It doesn't happen anymore because there just isn't enough dogs to do that. Or it might be that you'd be on a specialist operation where, you know, they, they're one of the um, crime squad units needed dog support. Looking so for burglars or something like that. Exactly Best, that. Yeah. 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 And and so you have two two cops and two dogs in a car and zero guns, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's that I can't wrap my head around. <laughs> um, and you, you told me the story about, can you just touch on, uh, you know, the history of uh, canines being armed and canine officers being armed, I should say. And uh, Yeah, there was a point where at um, a large international airport um, over at Heathrow that they decided that the dog handlers should be armed. Um, but there was a photograph that appeared in the national press of uh, a dog handler with a handgun um in one hand a dog in the other the dog was clearly agitated uh, and it, it made a lot of bad press and the question was then asked you know how accurate could that officer be firing that gun with that dog pulling him all over the place um it it, it was it was unfortunate let's put it that way because um you know, we, we, you know the, the, the handler with a bit of forethought could have maybe put his dog into a controlled position and dealt with the situation better but once that hits the press there's no taking it back um and and because we are we are as police officers not routinely armed anyway it wasn't that much of a decision to say well right we'll take the guns away from those particular dog handlers you know uh, and interesting enough all of the polls that have ever been done over here in regards to whether or not we should be routinely routinely armed has come out in favor of no and that's that's polls amongst the officers, have, right? Yeah, absolutely. The, the officers yeah. don't want to be armed. No, they don't. No. Huh. Um, now, now I know you have firearm support squads. So, could you just kind of tell me back then and even today? It's probably not much different. I know there are certain calls where maybe you'll team up. Can you kind of outline that how that works? And yeah, um, the the tactical fire uh, the tactical firearms units um, would basically be a, a call based unit. So that if there was a an armed operation, if they're going to go and arrest a guy who was wanted for armed robbery and he's new, known to to to, have, to own firearms, um, they'd do a raid in the early hours of the morning. Or if there was a bank robbery, which they knew was going to come off uh, and they had a planned operation, the, the armed units would be there. And as a dog handler, if you had, out of the 400 police dogs that we had, we, we struggled to find uh, 25 to 30 that would actually make the standard to work with those teams because there was we we, we required dogs that were quiet um very very controlled the searching ability was um way way beyond anything that was required for a, a general patrol dog if you like um, because obviously that um the, the consequences of the dog not alerting is is going to be fatal whereas because the majority of our criminals aren't armed, you know, the average street burglar isn't going to have a gun, much less even a knife. Um, if the dog doesn't find him, well, it's, it's a bad guy that's got away. That, that's that's as, that's the bad. But if you obviously if you miss a guy who, who's armed, then somebody's going to die. 
Um, so, so the dogs were specially trained. We 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 would, we would deploy on on sort of um, uh, we'd be on a vehicle and they, they they'd call up for a specialist search dog, a specialist tactical firearm support dog. Uh, and then we'd we'd break off our ordinary patrol and go there, or we might be called out from home. So um, it, it depended, really. Yeah, you know, it, it, many of the many of the firearms units got to know the dogs and the handlers, and would put in a call for a, for a special. You know, I, I, that yeah, I want that dog and that handler, which which the senior officers didn't like. But to be honest with you, it, it we it so 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 suited people like me to be perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> the overtime was always welcome. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> so. absolutely. So you, how long uh, did you spend doing the the patrol dogs out on the street? For about eleven years as a patrol dog handler, and then um, the opportunity came up to become an instructor. Um, which was a, a dog training school where we have a dozen, 12 full-time trainers who have all been police dog handlers. Um, so we don't employ any form of um, civilian uh, dog trainers. So there's no no privately owned dog training facilities where you can go and certificate as a police dog. It has to be done at a, a, a police force dog training school. We do have... Civilians employed now, we didn't in those days, but now if you have a history of, you know, IPO or Schutzend or Mondeo um, and you can prove that you've got skills that could be beneficial to the training of a police dog, then these these police dog training schools will employ you as a civilian um, to come and work for them. But that's a fairly recent innovation, to be honest. Um, and, and as far as I'm concerned, something that's very, very welcome because the Police forces in the UK were always very much a closed shop in terms of outsiders. We thought of ourselves as the experts uh, and and couldn't give any credence to anybody who hadn't been a police dog handler as to how they could possibly train a police dog. And yet, to be honest, some of them uh, in in certain aspects of of dog training are superb dog trainers and, and such a waste not to to use those skills to be yeah. frank. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. And we, we see kind of a mixed bag of that here, you know, where there's some pla- places that are pretty welcoming to it and others that are, you know, it's a, and we both have seen good and bad cops who are trainers, you know, both. Um, so at that time when you're an instructor with that many dogs, I imagine you're off the road then, you're just training dogs every day? Yeah, you're training dogs, but you can you you could continue to have a specialist dog. So you could have a cadaver dog. Um, or you could have an experimental dog as a trainer. So at that time, we were uh, looking at um, money detection dogs. We were looking at dogs that could follow specific scent that would be impregnated into um, uh, ransom money. Um, so anything new that came up, you, you as an instructor, you could take on a dog and train it for, for that purpose and evaluate whether or not it was something that we could add to our, so, our repertoire. Yeah, you had talked about that earlier. And, and so kidnapping and paying ransom here is just not something that common. So when I just think that's a real interesting story. Can you kind of talk about what that program entailed and, and where it came from? When 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 you're doing a ransom drop. Um, which which what, at that time was fairly common, right? It was fairly, yeah, we, we had a spate, certainly in the 80s, of, of people who were kidnapped, you know, people belonging to wealthy families, kidnapped, held for ransom. The money would be dropped 
usually in, in the middle of a park or something like that or a, a forest area. Um, the bad guy would would obviously, I mean, the life of the hostage was was paramount. Sure. And if they saw any evidence of, of police, then their lives were at risk. So we came up with the idea, really, of having a breed of dog that was not recognisable as a police dog. So it might be a, a collie dog or something like that. It could even be a crossbreed. Um, the money that was dropped would be impregnated with a very, very specialist scent that had been developed in a laboratory uh, and was absolutely unique. And the dog would be trained on that scent. So when the bad guy picked the bag up with the with the ransom money in it, it didn't look any different than anything else. Um, you know, there was no obvious visible signs that that money had been in any way, shape or form tampered with. Um, but he left behind him a clear trail of scent that, a specialist dog could follow and it was quite successful now of course we've got technology that can do that you know you, you could easily put something in a bag that couldn't be detected that will allow you and as you say it's not the kind of crime that is quite so common today but there was a period and it was the sort of thing that we were looking for because our, our belief is and still is that the more that we have to offer then the better it is for for us because our unit's not going to be cost cut or disbanded because people need you need people to need you exactly exactly and if i could get on my soapbox for a minute people are listening especially in the u.s we got so many changes going on with law enforcement right now everybody should be thinking that way about you know is there a change we could do to this program because like especially right right now as we record this patrol dogs are kind of under attack in the media and i'm seeing some agencies do different things. So, I mean, I think we should all be looking at unique ways and dogs have been used so many different ways. You know, we should be expanding our capabilities all the time just to, to not be boxed into one, one type of dog or one type of deployment. And, and like you say, Steve, just make sure that we're always needed. Yeah. I mean, a point in case would be the discussions I've had over the years, mainly with American colleagues about the bite and hold bark and hold all uk dogs are bark and hold um that, that that's a national standard that is set that doesn't mean to say that under circumstances where the offender or the suspect is is trying to escape or is violent that the dogs won't bite because they will um now one of the benefits of, of us having a bark and hold dog is that we can utilize that dog to search for a missing person whether that be a child or um, an elderly person with dementia and and you know you have to ask yourself the question as a cop we all want to arrest bad guys and that's where we want to focus but the life of somebody who's laying out in a ditch is just as important as finding the guy who's just robbed a local liquor store um you know and and so, so you know, when 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 you when you think of the bark and hold, bite and hold, and and um, you know, that there there are very very good reasons for for, and I can understand in in your society why you might want a bite and hold dog. I was fortunate when I was working patrol dogs. I actually worked first a, a detaining dog or a bark and hold dog, and then our agency switched to bite and hold. So I'm pretty exposed to both. I could argue either side. You know pretty well as to, you know, I mean, there's definite advantages to both. Um, the people who, the people here who think that uh, a detaining dog doesn't bite are, are ill-informed because they, they certainly do. And we have agencies like LAPD that, uh, that 
you know, show that on a regular basis that the dogs, you know, are, are bark and hold, but yet they still do just fine on the street. So you just have to justify it. Exactly. That, that's, that's yeah. you know, a little bit more possibly than if you've got a dog trained to bite. Okay. So when you were at, as an instructor, you probably had a lot of different, uh, specialty type dogs. So I, I imagine probably more than you could count. Can you kind of talk about what some of the highlights of the, the different types of specialty dogs you had? You had yeah, the, the 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 big benefit for me, especially when I was running the breeding program, was that if if a new breed came up, so when the Malinois came up, when the Dutch herder came up, because these weren't traditionally British police dogs, I'd have the opportunity to go out buy a puppy of that breed, um, and then run it on uh, and do an assessment on it. So for me, because I, I I'm I am, even though I'm 63 now and, and well retired, you know, I'm, I'm a patrol dog man. Uh, I'm not a, a search dog man. They did make me have a Cocker Spaniel, which sent me round the bend, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, but uh, so, so being able to experiment with the different breeds was, was pretty much the highlight for me. Uh, and, you know, sometimes they, 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 they'd want a, a dog run on just as a spare. So we have six guys on a, or six guys and girls on a, on a course, uh, and I I have a fourteen year, uh, month old male German Shepherd or Dutch Herder that um, could just drop in if one of their dogs fell um, out of the course for some reason. Um, so so that was really that was really my my sort. So at any uh, given time, you were trading dogs yeah, in and out. And... Yeah, I, I really wasn't that interested. I've got to be honest with you in. Um, specialist scent detection dogs. It it it, it, well, it didn't do anything for me. <laughs> um, you know, there was a time in my life where I wasn't as much now, and now I I train all of them, and uh, it's 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 a whole different you know set of challenges. So uh, I didn't I didn't think I'd ever get to where I'm as passionate about it as I am now. So I understand what you're saying, but luckily, uh, you know, I've, yeah. I've when when, when I first went there as an instructor, you you take general purpose police dog training courses, so you you'll take on six dogs and handlers who um, have got dogs anything from 12 to 16 months of age, uh, and you've got um, 12 weeks to turn them into um, certificated operational police dogs. Some of those dogs may have come through the puppy scheme, and that would be a nice, easy job, and some may have been either donated, um, obtained from a rescue centre, or, um, or purchased as a part-trained adult. Um, and then after that, I, I took over the training of the tactical firearm support dogs. And then I was offered the opportunity to become the breeding manager and puppy trainer, uh, which came out of the blue. Um, but uh, let's, uh, you know, Before we get to that, let's talk about the tactical ones. How long was the training for the tactical firearms dogs? Basically, what would happen is you had to have been an operational police dog for two years. So, so you've finished your basic training course. You've gone out there and you've got two years under your belt. So the dog is now going to be about three. Um, once the dogs reach that age, recommendation from local training officers would come in saying, I think this dog is suitable. And then we would put a course together, which would last four to six weeks, where those dogs and handlers would come into the dog training school and they would be assessed for their suitability to work with tactical firearm support group, uh, and um, the fallout was pretty pretty high. To be honest, as I say, that 
out of 400 dogs, we were lucky to get 25 to 30 that, that made the grade. And I imagine uh, that's, a, that's a team thing too. So I imagine every once in a while you had a good dog and a bad handler. Absolutely it was. You know, there's times where, where you'd have a superb dog with a handler who, who just didn't have what it took. Sometimes it could just be personalities. You know, you, some, some, on some of these operations, you're stuck in the back of an armored Land Rover for, you know, six, seven hours. And if you've got a guy who gets on your nerve in 20 minutes, someone can shoot him by the, <laughs> yeah. by the end of the shift. <laughs> um, and and we, we, didn't, we didn't really like taking dogs off of one handler and handling it and it ending it over to somebody else. It, it wasn't part of what we did. So that, they would just be rejected as not suitable. Um, and then that those dogs would get refresher training um, uh, three times a year. And in addition to that, they would go with the firearms teams on their refresher training. Um, so it, it, it took an awful took an awful toll on on the operational commitment, to be honest, because there was so much training involved. But you know, you don't get you don't get a, a top flight team um, with, without putting in the training time. So then you you trained those teams for a while, and then you said uh, you had the opportunity to go and be the the puppy breeding manager. So, um, talk about the facility and how you know how large that is, and and kind of what you were doing because it's it's uh, you know better than I do. But am I incorrect by saying that it's probably pretty unique for, throughout the world? I mean, for the the amount of dogs you guys bred and how you did I, it. I think it. Yeah, I think it probably was, you know, we had an awful lot of visitors from all over the world, from the US, from Australia and New Zealand, and India, um, to, that they were interested in what we did. And, and an awful lot of people went away and tried to set something up similar and failed. Um, and and I, 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 it's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to put your finger on as to why a puppy system fails. But I, but I think it's primarily down to the management of, of the dog units, um, not giving the person running the program time to get it up and running. You are not going to be an instant success. You are not going to be producing an 80% success rate of all the pups that you breed. You know, it takes years to get there because even if you're producing dogs with the right temperament, it's no good if they're not physically capable. So I mentioned earlier on about my first police dog was put to sleep when she was because she was an epileptic um we found when i took the program over and i'd done a little bit of research that epilepsy was absolutely throughout our, our breeding program it, it was in at the time we had 12 breeding bitches and i think nine of them went back to epileptic lines and it, and it is highly inherited um uh, so so you spend time eliminating that and then you find that you've got you know uh, a pancreatic problem or, or, a, or a heart problem there's always something that, that's going to make what you're doing better generally those are the genetic defects that you're only going to find after you've had a few breedings exactly. with the different yeah. yeah and that's why we we ultimately went down the road of um freezing dog semen from our operational police dogs because instead of if you, you can just imagine you've got the absolute perfect dog on the street Everyone's raving about it. Um, he's got a good handler. You really ought to be using that for breeding. He himself is physically fit. You've got perfect pitch lines to put him to, but you don't know what's hidden deep in his genetics. And 
it might be that you use him and you produce lots of puppies from him. And then at the age of four or five, he goes down with some disease that, that you weren't expecting. It's a bit easier today because you've got the ability to do DNA, but we didn't have that facility. So what we used to do was we would take semen from the dog and freeze it. We'd then produce um, specimen litters from him and see how those puppies developed potential police dogs. And all the time having this frozen sperm bank, if you like, of uh, from from this super dog um, that, that we can use later on in his life when he's proved that he is a physically fit specimen. Now, the problem, of course, with that is that um, handler ability doesn't breed on. So this superb police dog that you're now going to take a litter of pups from, or hopefully lots of litters of puppies from, uh, if he is the product of a very, very talented handler, he's an average dog genetically who just happens to fall into the hands of a very, very skillful individual, as, as has happened over here, then that's not going to breed on in the puppies. Um, and we had a national police dog champion. He won the national police dog trials three years in a row, never been done, never produced a decent puppy because he was not a product of his genes. He was a product of his handler's ability. Yeah, so you have to be sure that you're not breeding on from a dog that is purely a product of a good dog handler. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was, and that's what I was saying facetiously. Maybe you should uh, breed the handler a little bit and have him for well, <laughs> him or her for future generations. It'd make it'd make nice your life a lot easier, yeah, you know? <laughs> wouldn't it? Just if you could just clone, because we 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 actually spoke about cloning police dogs. And, you know, you could clone and make a litter of six clone dogs. You're not going to get the same product. There's so many variables to it. That... Absolutely they are. You, you can give the best puppy in the world to, to a complete ass of a dog handler and he'll ruin it. You know, it doesn't. Um, and you can give an average puppy to a skillful man who, who, or woman who will turn out an absolute superb product. So, so it, I, I want to just talk real briefly about um, the facility itself. You guys had a large training center where you were able to to breed these dogs, and I think that's beside. You know, I mean, that also was something I'm sure people came from all over the world to see. I, I was lucky enough you showed me the facility, but can you just talk yeah. about what the investment was there? And, and yeah, I mean, I mean, the dog school's been uh, in existence from um, the 1960s. Uh, it, it, it's um, Covers probably, I imagine, about 10 acres of land. Uh, it's got kenneling for about 140 dogs. Um, it's got its own veterinary facility. Uh, it's got um, its own laboratory where all the, um, the semen evaluation and, and things like that was carried out. Um, large areas where you can do agility, which so you've got the, the agility equipment permanently set up brick walls that have been particularly built for us um, and we're surrounded by nothing but farmland so for, for tracking and searching um, everything is there there's a huge admin unit with a, a canteen facility all the 400 dogs or however many they're up to now or down to I should say now 150 whatever it is they all train out of this uh, yes, they, yes, they 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 go there to do their initial training. They come back for certain um, continuation training, but we also have satellite training grounds throughout London as well. 
So their weekly yeah, training is closer to their station. Yeah. yeah. So there'll be a permanent a permanent trainer attached to a satellite station, and and you know twelve trainers attached to the dog training school, and and that's that they are that's all they do. They they are permanent dog trainers that that have basically given up operational policing to. Sure. become a dog trainer some of them go back to operational policing that was always my intention to be honest was to go down there yeah maybe five or six years and then go back but to be honest it gets hold of you and yeah you know yeah. best laid plans and all that <laughs> so you so you at this point you you had worked into and now you were the breeding manager so basically you were you were picking the dogs that you wanted to breed with the the research you did and and it was kind of on your shoulders then to start uh, and you, was it yours and yours alone to produce these dogs? Yeah, it was me, j- just me. Um, I had a, a, a boss um, who was above me, who was was a good man to work for. In that, when he gave you a job, he le- he let you get on with it, you know. And and you know, this is one of the reasons why breeding programs elsewhere have failed, is because the senior management um, isn't supportive enough, in my opinion. You know. Yeah, you, you 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 know that they're, they're a lot of them are looking at the next rank. They want to prove the position. They're looking at the budget, and and you're looking at the product. And sometimes you clash. And this particular guy was was very very good at letting us do our job, uh, and not putting us under under that sort of pressure. I mean, you know, to give you an example, I produced a litter of puppies. I do uh, seven week old character assessments on the pups to determine which ones were going to keep within the program and which ones I don't think have the potential. And um, I produced a litter of pups, eight puppies in the litter. Not one of them, as far as I was concerned, was suitable to be included in our puppy training program. And, and you know, you go into his office yeah. <laughs> and say, like, absolute heap of rubbish that lot. <laughs> and you'll be asked the question, well, why? And so well, I really don't know because the dam has produced two litters previously that have proved good and the sire is just that combination doesn't seem to have worked on this occasion and he'd say okay fine sell them sell them use the money to go out and buy some new breeding stock you know um and that was always the the big benefit the puppies that we produced that weren't suitable we could sell off and we had a huge waiting list from the public you know who wanted to buy police bred puppies and then we would reinvest that money back into the breeding program was there any liability about selling puppies? Did they ever come back and say this dog bit the neighbor kid and that's your fault or anything like that? No, never. No. I mean, you know, we we were we were health testing our dogs, hips and elbows years before it was common for for a lot of pet dog breeders to be doing it. So, um, you know, I think they saw it more as a, a, a sort of a bit of a guarantee, really, that everything that could be done has been done. And um, and when you took this job, the the program was already in existence. Yeah, been in existence. I took it over in um, something like ninety one, ninety two, um, and it had been in existence from the 90, from sixty four when we brought the first dogs in from Germany. Um, but unfortunately, none of the original bloodlines had, had, had survived. Um, we had all sorts of health issues that needed to be eliminated. And, and I took a little bit of stick because I had some very good friends who were involved in the sport of Schutzen who were, because we had, we had some really 
really archaic quarantine laws in this country. You know, if you brought a dog in from Europe, it, it would be in quarantine for six months. And the cost implications of that was horrendous. When, when that was relinquished, really good dogs started to come in from, from you know, Germany, Belgium, France, um, and, and they were accessible to us. But the people that had the money were the civilians. And I had very good friends who were, were involved in buying in some quality dogs um, who let me use those dogs at stud. Um, it produced a completely different type of police dog. We, we'd all, always traditionally had sort of solid enough type dogs that were, uh, I'd put them in, if I had to put them in the class of a vehicle, they'd be a Volvo. You know, they sort of plod along and do the job. Um, uh, and we were looking at Ferraris um, in terms of some of these dogs that were coming in. So I could only imagine that when you start putting out a different class of dog, knowing how, how all of us cops are, we don't like change that much. So I'm sure you started taking some heat from the trainers and from the handlers. Absolutely, yeah. Because let's be honest, you know, the Volvo type dog is an easy dog to train. So it plods along, it does the job, you know. When when you're giving somebody something that, that uh, can out, in terms of speed, uh, outthink them, the, the average dog handler, um, and trainer, to be honest, because of what they've been used to. Um, yeah, I, I did come in for quite a bit of stick, but the people who were thanking me were the younger handlers coming through who could see the the, the change in the type of, of dog that we had. Um, but I, I, I've saw, I saw that here, you know, early on in my career, it was not nearly as many mouths, very few mouths, and you know, you'd see the, the people want to train the Malinois the way you train a German Shepherd, which now most People understand it's the, they're different dogs, so I can only imagine, you know, the frustration of someone who had been a successful trainer for some period of time, all of a sudden not being able to train it, and instead of looking at themselves, it's easier to point the finger at somebody else or the dog. So, and 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 to make things even more challenging for us, things such as the electric collar, the pinch collar were all banned to us. As yeah. police dog cleaners, we we couldn't use those. And that was your whole career. Yeah, uh, I mean, no, 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 not at all. When I first joined the, the canine unit, um, my second dog, um, who didn't want to be a bark and hold dog, <laughs> um, they they tried using electric collar on him. But this is how far back it was. It had two long leads that attached electrical <laughs> leads that run from the collar to the remote. <laughs> and and he was quite a bright dog. He yeah, sat there yeah. and just looked at you. Like, <laughs> I know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so they they, they were okay. You know, we, we were able to use them um, for, because nobody knew about them, I suppose. Once the public become aware, uh, and we, we are consciously, you know, always conscious of, of the public's feeling towards us, uh, we had a bad incident over here where a police dog died in training, not as a result of electric collar or a pinch collar or any other police equipment. He died because he'd been kicked. And, and that that sort of hit the press. And anything that was remotely um, uh, involved in, in pain um, was, was told, no, you can't, you just simply can't use that. And that's what, you know, like, especially with the, the climate of law enforcement here in the U.S. right now, I... I keep telling everybody, we, you know, we really, really need to look at all of our actions and and everything because those knee-jerk reactions 
that could come, you know, I mean, people don't think it could happen here, but a police chief could get a phone call from somebody who knows nothing about dogs that or dog training, you know, police dogs and talks about an electric collar and the police chief writes a two line memo that that won't be used anymore. And, and you're done. I mean, so. absolutely. And, and to be honest with you, you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate of, of, um, never say never that, 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 you know, there are dogs that are in the UK that are being put to sleep by vets because the majority of our dog trainers are positive only dog trainers um, and I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. What I'm saying is there are certain situations that they can't manage with their philosophy on dog training that results in those dogs going to the vet and being put to sleep. Whereas my philosophy is if if I have to use a pinch collar or electric collar to remedy a problem that would otherwise cause that exactly. dog to be put to sleep, surely that's better. Exactly. And you can you can do a lot of great training without pain involved to communicate with a dog with an e-collar very, very effectively that can solve a lot of problems. But unfortunately, um, you know, I think sometimes decisions are made without learning all the, the implications of them. So, Well, I think the decisions are made by people who have no understanding. I mean, you talk to somebody about building drives using a pinch collar and, and they look at you as if, you know, you're speaking a foreign language. Um, so, so at that time, how many different breedings would you have going on at any given time? By the time that I'd, I'd sort of left the program, we'd built the breeding program up from 12 bitches to 30-odd. So we, we, we'd be producing um, probably 18 litters a year, 18 litters of puppies a year. So, you know, average litter of eight maybe. Um, so maybe 130, 140 pups a year. So that's, that's um, a robust breeding program. Yeah. It is, and 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 I I I like to think that our, our success rate was at about eighty percent. You know, it would fluctuate. Um, you'd have complete washout litters, and then you'd have whole litters that that would go on and make the grade. But the difference from our breeding program to any other breeding program in the UK was that invariably the puppy would be allocated to the person who was going to be its handler for the rest of its life at eight weeks of age. So we, we wouldn't put puppies out to what they call puppy parents, members of the public who are going to raise that puppy for the first 12 months. If if you were on our unit, I would allocate you a puppy at eight weeks of age that was going to be your canine partner for the next sort of 10 years. And that is that is something that I want to get into a little bit deeper. And because we try to keep these shows at about 20 minutes or so, I'd like to uh, uh, maybe see if we can get you back on another show. And I want to start talking about, you know, from the time you've got the, the dogs bred, I think it's a, a, an awesome program, the way that you would kind of work through things. So um, if it's all right with you, we'll get you back on another show and then we'll pick up on the, the puppies and assigning them and then working them through uh, their training. On that'd the be brilliant. Show, that'd be great. Yeah. I look forward to that. Okay, Steve, thank you for the time today and we will get you back on very soon. Cheers, Jeff. You take care. And if you guys like this type of uh, discussions and stuff, obviously Hits Canine. We do our seminars every year. Steve's always been an a instructor. He's always there. You can uh, find people like Steve, sit down, talk to him, share a beer with them, pick their brains. So hitscanine.net, it'll tell you all about where we're going to be. It'll be July uh, next year, July 2021. We'll be in Scottsdale. So hitscanine.net, it'll tell you everything we've got going on. Thanks again, Steve. We'll talk to you soon. If you're looking to make an investment in your canine career, come to HITS 2021. 
there's no substitute for the real thing. Whether you're a new handler who's looking to learn more about dog training or an experienced trainer who's looking for new training ideas and techniques, come to HITS 2021 where the investment is well worth the return. HITS 2021 will have more classes and more vendors who give away more free raffles and gifts and free cash than ever before. HITS is the world's largest canine seminar and is open to police officers and military members. Our experience makes the difference. You've been there, and we've been there too.